So, hey, y'all, I I battled myself this morning to decide whether I was going to say something or not, but I I can't help myself. Did y'all see that football game yesterday? (laughs) Two, the battles for the states, it was rivalry Saturday. Two cities that are pretty close together, and you had brother fighting brother and sister fighting sister and cousins and just crazy rivalry and hatred on both sides. I'm so glad Georgia beat Georgia Tech. <laughs> there was another game on yet last night. Anyway, anyway, we are in the we're in the the last week of our uh, of our legacy our legacy series. And uh, today I want to talk to y'all about uh, what I'm going to say is is I think. The, the best legacy we could ever even wish to leave behind as we pass on. And, and I want to start off, before I even go down that road, I, I want to start off with a question that you may, maybe you've thought about this, maybe you haven't thought about it. I'm going to guess that you probably haven't thought about it. And that is uh, to answer a question, why did Jesus come into the world? Why was Jesus born? What a question that really is. What do you think? Do you think that it is to give us eternal life, maybe? And uh, what a glorious thing. If you really, think, if you really, really think about that, uh, eternal life, what a glorious thing. Could it be to fulfill a bunch of prophecies, Old Testament prophecies? And in fact, Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies in one lifetime. Could it be that, or could it be, uh, could it be to redeem us? What a crazy thought redemption is that we could be bought back from something. And so could it be one of those things? And that's getting in the weeds probably, but I want to fly a little bit, at least to answer this question, from 35,000 feet. And I'm going to say no, those, <coughs> for our purposes this morning, those three, are, that's really not why he was born. In fact, we can find the answer to that very question in the book of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by the Apostle John. It's one of four accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, in John chapter 18, it, uh, it records Jesus' words that answer that exact question. But I need to, I want to set the stage a little bit for you. Jesus had been arrested <clears throat> in the garden. He had been on trial all night long. So here we are in John chapter 18. We get to verse 37, Pontius Pilate, the governor, <clears throat> is questioning and interrogating Jesus, and he says, you know, are you the king of the, are you the, king of the, the Jews? Your own people handed you over. What, what must you possibly have done for your own people to hand you over? So here we come to verse 37, and this answers the question that I asked, why, why did Jesus come into the world? And so Pilate says, you are the the king then and Pilate asked Jesus and then Jesus answered I am as you say a king for this reason I was born for this uh, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth for this reason I was born for this reason I came to the world to testify to the truth if Jesus said this do you think truth would be a pretty important issue for this reason I was born for this I came to the world to testify to the truth. In fact, it is such an important issue that 75 times, 75 times in your Bible, Jesus said, truly, truly, depend on your translation, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I, I, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. 
said it 75 times. So how important really is this issue of truth? Let's look at what, what, what your Bible says. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 17, 17, uh, he asked the Father, sanctify, he asked the Father to sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In John 4, 24, he says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. In John 8, 31 and 32, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then in Luke, and there's passage after passage after passage that, that, where Jesus speaks to the importance of truth. And then we get to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in Nazareth, and he's in a synagogue preaching, and he unrolls, you know, he unrolls a scroll and they didn't have a book like this. Everything was on scroll. So he unrolls a scroll. And in fact, it's the book of Isaiah that he unrolls uh, and he, that he started reading from. And he said, the, the Spirit of the Lord, this is Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel, the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives, freedom for the prisoners, freedom for the inmates. Do you think that Jesus went to Nazareth to bust out of jail a bunch of, of robbers and criminals and murderers and rapists? Well, of course not. Well, then if not, what is it? Well, think about what is it that takes us captive? What is it that puts shackles on us? What is it that takes us prisoners? And it's lies that take us captive. And it's the truth. He just told us in John, it's the truth that sets us free. So I hope at least that you'll consider this morning uh, that truth is important, number one. And number two, all of this implies that there is, in fact, such a thing as truth. We live in this post-crock, this post-truth world today. You'll hear that on the news. And so is there something, and I would ask you to consider, there is objective truth, but it also implies that there are untruths. In fact, it implies that there is a battle that goes on. There's a battle every day, and it's between the truth claims of God, and the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The battle takes place every day. And this morning, I want to have a conversation about three of these truth claims that God makes. And I believe that they are big ones. And I want to compare them to, this, to the deceptions, to the deception that your adversary would have for you to believe. And this issue invades every single area of our life. There's no place that you can turn, north, south, east, west, where that battle is not raging. Anywhere you turn, that battle is raging. And it's the truth claims of God versus the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it did not begin yesterday. It began at creation in the Garden of Eden on day six when God breathed life into man. That's what the Bible says. He, he, he created ex nihilo, he created out of nothing, and he breathed life into man. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Now, and Satan was there, 
He was in the garden. Satan was there. And so imagine this scene. And I'm taking some poetic license, so this is not in, in the Scripture, but I can only imagine in the garden there was nothing. God, out of nothing, created man. He breathed life into him, and Satan is standing there. And Satan says, what is it? And God says, I call him man. Did I sound like James Earl Jones when I said that? I call him man. And Satan says, is it mine? And God says, no, 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 no. I created him in my image, and I made him with a chooser. And Satan says, what's a chooser? God replies, I want man to choose. I want man to decide on his own to love me and to worship me and to bow down before me. And Satan said, me too. And Satan is really saying, give him a choice. Give him another choice. Lay another truth claim in front of him, and we'll just see how they, how, how they choose. We'll just see if they choose you. And so Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then in Genesis 3, first five verses of Genesis 3, it says the serpent was the shrewdest, the slickest, the most conniving, that's what that Hebrew word means, the slickest, most conniving, shrewdest uh, of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course not. Uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will certainly die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And all of creation hung in suspense to see how we would choose. Would we choose the truth claims of God, or would we choose the truth claims of the devil? And we chose cataclysmically poorly. That's the battle that rages today. The serpent said to Eve, did God really say not to eat from it? Here's the deal. Fundamentally, every sin that you and I commit begins with the belief in a lie. They all begin with, did God really say? Did God really say, thou shalt not commit adultery? Did God really say, thou shalt not steal? It's okay. It's okay. It's just this one time. My company makes tons of money, and I deserve to raise, and I didn't get a raise anyway, and they're never going to miss it. In fact, I'll put it back next month. Did God really say, thou shalt not steal? The cataclysmic events in that garden had a crazy, profound effect on mankind from that point on. And battle number one that I want to talk about this morning is about that effect uh, that played out after those events in the garden. So battle number one is, is, is man basically good versus man basically bad? And it really circles back to the garden, what happened there, this thing that we call the fall, the fall of man. In the garden, man had untainted free will, pure, 100% libertarian free will. In the garden, it had not been tainted yet. In the garden, they had the ability to choose yes and the ability to choose no. You and I uh, have been tainted. But in the garden, Adam and Eve had the ability to say yes or to say no. Said another way, 
I still have the ability to choose, but now it has been tainted by my sinful nature. And I'm a slave now to my own corrupt and wicked desires. Now, don't let that mean, I'm not being fatalistic. Don't let that mean that I am as bad as I could possibly be, unless you maybe ask my wife. But if, if, uh, it doesn't mean that I'm as bad as I could be. Um, It doesn't mean that I can't even maybe do some good stuff every now and again. But here's what it does mean, and I want you to hear this. It means that the corruption of sin extends to all men so that there's nothing, zero inside of me, and nothing at all that I can do that will make me right in, in front of God. Nothing that I can do that will make me right in front of God. So let's look and see what the Bible says about who we are, about our nature. In Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Listen, if our nature is unaffected by all of this stuff, these events in the garden, and there is an equal opportunity to choose, because some people would have you believe that we are born neutral. We are not born neutral. We don't have an equal opportunity. But uh, if we look at all this, and if there is an equal opportunity to choose good as well as evil, why is it that every single human that has lived has sinned? Why, Why it makes no sense. The odds are good, but there's never been a winner. Read Romans chapter 3, really all of Romans chapter 3. But look at verse 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned, all means all, all doesn't mean some. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what the Bible says about who we are, about our nature. So what does the world tell you? Psychologist Carl Rogers, who's a famous, world-famous psychologist, he said this, and I want you to listen to what he said and listen to what's inside of what he said. He said, though I'm very well aware of the incredible amount of destructive, cruel, malevolent, horrible, horrific behavior in the world today, from the threats of war to the senseless violence in the streets to the terrorist act, yes, two, three days ago, you had three, 400 people blown up in a mosque in Egypt. And Carl Rogers says, I'm very well aware of that. Take all of that and look at it. And this is what, I, what he concludes. I do not find that evil is inherent in human nature. Really? One plus one equals two, not three. Now, I wanted to see what regular folks on the streets would say, and I really, Susan thought I'd lost my mind, so I just, I went up to three strangers at Columbus Park Crossing and just said, do you think man is basically good or basically bad? And it was kind of odd. It took about seven or eight people to actually get an answer from three of them. But I want to tell you what these three people said. The first one said, in general, people are genuine, truthful, good, kind, sympathetic, compassionate. And, And he went on and on and on. The second person said, we're basically good. Sometimes environment and circumstances may corrupt us, but we can return. We are all good. And I don't know what she meant by we we can return. But she says, she concluded, we're all good. The third uh, 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 person said, people are born good. Evil comes from forces outside the individual like poverty. Now, one of the best definitions that I've ever heard of of truth, R.C. Sproul, who's a great author, He said simply, very simply, that truth is that which conforms to reality. So 
what is the reality when the question before us is, is man essentially good or essentially bad? Just look at the headlines. Look, any, pick a day, pick a time uh, 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 of the day, turn the news on, and what do you see? You see uh, 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 the results of what happened in the garden. You see the murders. You see the, see the folks getting blown up. You see crime this and crime that and hate this and black and white and blue and green and purple and all that stuff. Look, and you see it. You want to see the results of what happened in the garden. Do any of you people have children? I mean, think about, think about a child. If we're born naturally good, why do we all have to spend so much time teaching children how to behave? None of y'all had to teach your kid how to bop the other kid on the head and grab what they had. You, you did, I didn't. My two, I'm constantly having to put them apart. They used to get in, they used to bathe them together. And, when I, and the only way I figured out is so, you know, kids are so I could manipulate them. They would constantly be fighting in the bathtub constantly and so finally I, I put him in the bathtub bathtub and I and I pushed him apart and I said Zach if you hit Will if you touch Will I'm gonna spank Will and I said Will if you touch Zach I'm gonna spank Zach and they both were like they couldn't get far enough apart you know you don't have to teach kids how to be bad now they're not as bad as they could be but we don't have to teach them how to be bad so Jonathan Edwards, another great theologian from years ago, he said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What a great quote. So if I'm broken inside and I'm jacked up inside and in need of repair, how is it that I get fixed? That, that leads me to the battle number two, the beginning of the answer of how do I get fixed. So battle number two is, is Jesus God versus Jesus was just a good guy. No other person in history has provoked so much study and so much controversy and so much criticism and so much prejudice and so much devotion as Jesus of Nazareth. And this Jesus that we believe in, or or maybe don't believe in, like it or not, is the Jesus on the pages that we find on the pages of this Bible. Apart from this book... We know nothing of any consequence concerning the real Jesus. The collection of books in the New Testament are our primary sources. The earliest documents of those who knew him, the record of those who hung out with him, the record of those who walked the, the, the roads and the streets and the byways and the highways of ancient Israel, they were eyewitnesses to his ministry 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. Generally speaking, people don't deny that. People generally, even an unbeliever is not going to, typically, not going to deny deny that Jesus existed. These guys that wrote, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the firsthand accounts of his life, they beg us to examine it. They beg us to investigate it. They beg us to look at his life and decide for ourselves who he is. But we can't really focus on just on his teaching Uh, his teachings, and his works, first and foremost, we've got to focus on his identity. The challenge is not really what did Jesus teach. The challenge is really who is he. So let's look at what the Bible says first. Matthew in chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, um, Jesus asked Peter, he said, but what about you? He asked him, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, 
you are the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. In Mark chapter 14, verse 61 and 2, again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Y'all listen to this one. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this guy talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Duh. The, The duh is not in the Bible. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking, they, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. And I, and I want, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's one of the terms Jesus referred to himself as, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He clearly, at, don't let folks tell you he didn't, he clearly claimed the ability to forgive sins, which was a right that God alone has. He wasn't condemned for the cross for his actions. He was condemned to the cross for his identity. This trial that he went through was one of a kind in criminal trials because not the actions of the defendant were the issue, but the identity of the defendant was the issue. He claimed equality with the Father. Jesus claimed equality with the Father. He said if you saw him, you'd seen the Father. He was worshipped as God, and he accepted that worship. He claimed divine authority. It was crystal clear to the Jewish hearers of the day that he was claiming to be God. Clear as a bell. The historical Jesus didn't live in a vacuum either. He's known at least in part by the transforming power that he had over the people that were around him. I want to know the Jesus that radicalized Matthew, the the, the tax collector. I want to know the Jesus that transformed Peter and got him up out of the boat to walk on water. I want to know the Jesus that raised Lazarus up from being dead. I want to know the Jesus that turned Saul of Tarsus, who was killing Christians, who turned his world upside down on the Damascus Road and renamed him Paul. That's the Jesus that I want to know. And if if these firsthand eyewitness, if they can't get me to who he is, then I don't know who can. So that's what the Bible tells you about it. Now, what does the world tell you about him? Judaism generally speaking, views Jesus as just another number of Jews over history who had claimed to be the Messiah. He was no more than a teacher. Like all prophets in Islam, for Islam, Jesus was considered a Muslim. Uh, Islam rejects the view that he was God. Buddhists say that he was a wise and enlightened man who taught similar things as Buddha taught. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that he was the first created being, but they deny his godness. They deny his deity. Unitarian Universalists uh, say that Jesus was just a great teacher. Um, Lots of people would say, hey, he's just a prophet, Old Testament prophet, and he was a good teacher. He was a a rabbi. So how does the truth claim that's on the table that Jesus is God, how does that line up with reality? Wherever you fall on this, and everybody in this room doesn't fall in the same place on this, but wherever you fall on this, you cannot divorce his identity from what he said about himself. He clearly made the claims. With this said, 
we're left with really with two alternatives. Number one, his claims are true, in which case he is God, and you either accept that or you don't. And your acceptance of that or your unacceptance of that does not affect the truthfulness of the reality of what happened. Because you don't believe it doesn't make it not so. Don't, don't think that, that your opinion changes history. So, number one, his claims are true, <clears throat> in which case he is God and you either accept it or not. And number two, his claims are false, in which case he either knew his claims were false, making him a liar, a hypocrite, and a fool, or he didn't know his claims were false, making him crazy. So, if Jesus was a liar, a con man, and therefore evil, how can we explain the fact that he left us with the most profound moral instruction ever? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You want to know how to live the Christian life? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the longest block of instruction in all of the New Testament, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Could a deceiver, better said, would a deceiver of such gigantic, huge, mongous proportions teach such ethical truths and live such a perfect life? Of course he wouldn't. Of course he wouldn't. The Bible doesn't ask you to check your brain at the door. I'm asking you to dig in and figure it out because people don't argue with conclusions they come to on their own. So figure it out. Pick the Bible up and read it. This Bible, this is, what, this is God's revelation. This is what we have. This is, this is prophecy. This is the way God speaks to us in 2017. Pick it supernatural. The only supernatural book that's ever been written. Pick it up and read it. So then is it possible then that Jesus, option number two, that Jesus was just mistaken? He looked at the man in the mirror and he thought he knew himself, he just got it wrong. Could he be sincere but mistaken? For somebody to just fall down and trip and stand up and slip up and claim to be God would be lunacy, especially in that world because they would kill you for doing that. Nothing about his life identifies him as being a nut. His perfectly laid out teachings, his wisdom, his counsel, his selfless love for others, in particularly, in particular, the downcast and the poor and the needy. All of that reeks of, of brilliance. All of that reeks of strength and of compassion. C.S. Lewis, another great writer, Mere Christianity. You want to read a great book outside of the Bible? Mere Christianity, great book by C.S. Lewis. And he said, in that book, he said that no lunatic could possibly be the source for such perceptive and effective uh, insights. So, given these three choices, God, he's God, he's a liar, or he's crazy, and I can't see the possibility of any other choices other than if you just don't believe that he existed, where do you think the best evidence leads us? So when I picked up this Bible 15, 16 years ago and I read it, I was probably trying to prove that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, maybe even trying to prove that he didn't exist but at a minimum prove that he was not the Messiah, that all these Jesus freaks were at very best misled or deceived. But when you read this book in its entirety, when you labor across the pages, when you commit to believing whatever the truth is, when you commit to letting this book lead you along with the Holy Spirit to the truth, 
if you do this, there's only one conclusion you can possibly arrive at, and that is that he is exactly who he said he was, that he's not a liar, that he's not a nutbag, that he is in fact Lord. Which leads me to battle number three, which is the cross, the events at Calvary, the cross as historical fact versus none of it is really real. And I want you to, I want you to back up with me. You're going to think I'm weird when I do this, but I want you to back up with me for context sake to gain a little perspective of, where, of those events, and I want you to close your eyes. I really do. I want everybody in this room except for me. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to let me carry you back 2,000 years ago to a, to a dark, humid, foggy night in a garden two or three hundred feet outside of the ga- one of the gates in Jerusalem. And one of these guys, Judas, kissed Jesus on the cheek, indicating to the authorities that he was the one that they were looking for. They arrested him. They handcuffed him. They beat him mercilessly. They jammed a crown of thorns on his head, busting little holes in his head. He had blood pouring down his face. His, the flesh on his back was just ripped apart, blood pouring down his back. They put him on trial. They convicted him, not for something he did. They convicted him for claiming to be God. They marched him carrying that heavy piece of wood, and then they hung him on a cross to die. And there on that cross, the very most important event since creation took place, the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Paul said in Colossians, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. At noon, after Jesus had been there three hours on that cross, it got dark. The sun was darkened. Three hours later, Christ's last words affirmed his absolute trust in the Father. As he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he died. And in the temple, there was a curtain that hung, and it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The holy of holies was the place where where God hung out uh, with Israel. It was the place where God's presence was revealed according to the Jews. That curtain symbolized the barrier between God and man that was caused by the sin in the garden that we talked about at the beginning today. The second Christ died, that curtain tore from the top to the bottom. Sin had been taken care of on that cross. As Jesus declared, it's finished. It's finished, he said. God's plan was executed. He had just bought us back. He had just redeemed us from the sin in the garden when when Satan said, did God really say? And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, came to the governor and they asked him to provide a guard for that tomb. They didn't want anybody to steal that body and claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I cannot even imagine the discouragement and and just the sense of loss that the disciples felt. They put all of their hope in this guy and now... He was dead. The three years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years, that time that they'd spent with him just seemed to be a waste. What would they do now? They 
how could life even go on? So shortly before dawn, some women who were disciples of Jesus made their way to the tomb to anoint his body. And just imagine the shock that they felt when they saw that stone had been, had been rolled back and, the, and it was empty. And he's not here. He's risen, the angel told them. These are the coolest words ever. He has risen. The tomb was empty. He just walked right out of the grave. So here's the reality. Either every single thing that I just told you, you can turn the lights back up, every single thing that I just told you either happened in history or it didn't happen. It couldn't almost happen. Either it did or it didn't. So what does the world say about, it, about that? Generally speaking, they come up with three possibilities. Everybody who saw Jesus after the resurrection was hallucinating, they all hallucinated 500 people, the same hallucination at the same time. That's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But that's what some people would say. Some people would say it's a legend. It ain't a legend. Legends build up over time. They started spewing these lies immediately after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Number three, that it was a lie and it was a conspiracy. Think about that one. Twelve ordinary men with no dissenters, none became fickle, none changed their mind, none just let the cat out of the bag, and the most convincing argument ever about the conspiracy deal is that every one of them except John died for it. Folks don't die for a lie. Peter's crucified upside down. You don't do that for a lie. So the best evidence, the truth, as Sproul said, that which conforms to reality, is that everything that I just told you were real historical events. The evidence is massive. You would have to disbelieve and and change the way that we look at every other event in history. You'd have to intentionally make exceptions to the way that we look at history. Now, why would you do that? Ask yourself that question if you dare, and then take an honest look at your heart before you answer. Look at everybody else's guys. Confucius, tomb, not vacant. Buddha's tomb, somebody in there. Muhammad's tomb, somebody's in there. David's tomb, David is in there. But Jesus' tomb is empty. The verdict is in. He really did rise. He really was dead. He really was alive, and he walked right out of that tomb. So there's lots of battles between the truth claims of God and the truth claims of the world, the flesh, and the devil that happen today. These three that our adversary ferociously attacks those every day. Did God really say? The three we talked about in my world are these big three, that I was born a sinner, in need. I was born this weird, odd hole in my heart that only can be adequately filled by God, number one. Number two, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. He was not a liar. He was not a nutbag. He is the Lord, number two. Number three, that he actually died on a cross, redeeming me, buying me back, reconciling me to a holy God, that the resurrection was a real event in history, really happened. Jesus supernaturally got up and he walked out of that tomb. When I accepted these three as truth, when I believed them, when they permeated my head and they permeated my heart, when I said to myself, oh my gosh, I do believe that what I believe is really real, and I mean really real, my whole life changed. The way I looked at things changed. I took off one set of lenses, and I put on another set of lenses. The truth claims of the gospel will profoundly change you. They'll change your relationships. They'll change your outlook on life. They'll change your eternity. They'll change your service. 
They'll let you leave the very best legacy ever, the legacy of the fruit of a changed heart, humility, peace, grace, love, mercy, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, hope, hope. Hope is what separates a believer from an unbeliever. How hopeless is it when somebody dies lost? And how hopeful is it when somebody dies saved? I feared death before I was saved. I lost sleep at night as a child, scared to death of dying. I walk outside there right now, get run over by a bus, and I'd be okay because you know what? I'm a believer, and I will live for eternity. And as a dad, my wife is a believer, and both my sons are a believer. Take me, take me out. I'm okay with it. I don't want to die. Don't get me wrong. But I don't fear death, and I used to fear death. So the legacy is not of death, but of life, of eternal life in the arms of Christ. If you're a Christ follower today, the challenge then is just to allow these truths just to permeate and help you grow in your faith, to make sure that what you believe, that you really believe it. If you're not a Christ follower, my challenge to you is pick a a Bible up and read it. Get down on your knees and pray. Pick a Bible up and just read it and investigate it and stomp on it and, 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 and press it and try to prove it untrue because you can't. And I want you all to close your eyes again for a second. If you have come to accept today that these truth claims really are true, that, that you were born broken, that you were born a sinner, that you were born with this brokenness inside of you, that you were in need of rescue, that you, when you were in need of redemption, that Jesus Christ really did die on that cross. And this, it's called the, 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 the great exchange. And the great exchange is, is Jesus exchanges with you your sinfulness for his righteousness. If you believe that that happened today, if you believe that you were reconciled, that you were redeemed, that you were bought back out of your sinfulness and reconciled to a holy God, if that atonement on that cross happened today for you, then, then two things. You repent today and you believe on the name of Jesus Christ. If that happened and you really do believe that today, I would ask you to raise your hand. Everybody keep your, your, your heads down, your eyes closed. I'd ask you to raise your hand, not so that we can uh, jump down your throat, but so that we can come alongside of you as a body of believers and want to, uh, to walk that walk with you. So if that happened today to you, the heavens are just crying out with joy this morning. And so uh, let me say a prayer real quick, uh, and then we'll get back uh, to, to, to some worship time. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your salvation. Lord, we thank you that you did buy us back from our jacked upness, from our messed upness, that you paid the price on that cross to redeem us. Lord, we love you. Uh, We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.